you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are back with our second week covering Marjorie Allingham's famed mystery thriller, Traitor's Purse, chapters 7 to 14, 8 to 14, rather. Well, I can count. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Up to and including chapter 14. And uh, I am in the hot seat as Herds, and I continue on this espionage-fueled venture through the town of Bridge. Yeah, this is the series of chapters where everything goes wrong. Mm -hmm. It may have seemed as though having amnesia, having killed a cop... And, and escaping a hospital in a fireman's outfit was the low part of the story. But really, this is, you know, the middle section where Lug is mad at Campion. Lug being the Watsonian character who is an ex-criminal. He's wonderful. Yes. Uh, Amanda is mad at Campion because he can't remember their old in-jokes. And Hutch is mad at Campion because he got punched in the face by him. Everyone's mad at Albert Campion and he barely understands why. It's incredibly (laughs) interesting because for (laughs) chapters one to nine, there's this like long drawn out sense of tension Mm. of will anyone catch on to the fact that Albert Campion is not all there. And there's a lot of characters who remark that he's, you know, said odd things, but generally it seems that he's managed to keep it under wraps Mm. but then superintendent hutch uh catches word campion matches the description of the man who escaped from hospital Mm -hmm. not days earlier which of course was campion yep and tries to grill him to see if it is an imposter that has taken campion's place on this operation this investigation that they'd clearly had prearranged and of course because campion has amnesia he doesn't remember the, the the operations number. He he doesn't remember his like ID number for the Secret Service. His spy number. The tip that kind of sets this off is something to the effect of, "Have you ever actually seen a picture of Albert Campion? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you sure this is the right person? It may walk like a duck, but do you know what a duck even looks like? Like, do you know Albert Campion? He he has no other recourse but to, as I mentioned, sock hutch in the face." Which is rather rude, considering that Hutch has just shown him all of the secret underground lorries. Yeah. (laughs) Which is an insane scene. And so, of course, Campion goes on the run once again, which is where he kind of stumbles into the arms of his his old friend, uh, Lug, who... I said last week that I I might actually think that Hutch is my favorite character, but Lug is also my favorite character. They're all great. They're so fun. Hutch can't be the best character at this point in the novel because we've abandoned him for the sake of the plot, effectively. I know. Which is very sad. Because having his power, it would be too much. It would be too strong. Lug is so great. He, you know, speaks with this this great affect in the way that uh, Marjorie Allingham writes him. It's fantastic. He's he's a lovable thug. He is a lovable (laughs) thug. There's this phenomenal scene where he, uh, Campion and Lug meet with Weaver, comma, B, mm-hmm. who is one of two soldiers of fortune uh, twins who've, like, left the army and gone on to the underworld. And, you know, he's brandishing a gun at Campion and Lug just swings out of nowhere and knocks the gun out of the guy's hand. And it's like, oh, <laughs> these soldiers of fortune, not very well to do, sir. <laughs> I mean, look, he can he can hold his own. And I love that, as I, as I mentioned, there's a little bit of jealousy in, in the midst here in this love triangle between Lug, Campion, and uh, and Amanda. Because, of course, 
you know, when Campion wanders in, he kind of figures out eventually that Lug is a, is a good friend of his. But he says, yeah, I, I felt that I could trust Amanda implicitly. And Lug is In-important all like- Important note before you continue, Hans, uh-huh. is that Lug is the only person to which Campion has been honest about his mental condition yes. of not of like having this amnesia. Yes. So in a sense, is he really is he really in love with Amanda? Is he really the most trusting of Amanda or does he trust Lug even more? I know. This is the great question. But yeah, Lug is really indignant about it. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> He's like, oh, you you listened to Amanda before me. You remembered her first, you did. Oh, why I order. It's very good. <laughs> oh, man. And yeah, they, they like are basically hiding out at this like news agent's shop yes. uh, where they're being covered for by the lady at the front desk. You know, Lug's been hiding out back without seeing any of the customers for a few days since a cognizant campion met him last mm. so lug is also doing his own manner of detection and trying to figure out what it was that campion had told him to tell campion mm-hmm. now that campion doesn't know what he told him it's it's more of this you know the campion is the one man who can save everything everyone else is really willing to support him but he he doesn't he doesn't know what's up from down which is which is great it's a great position for him to be in I have to ask as well. We we also meet uh, we meet a couple characters who kind of appear on screen and then disappear. There's, there's Mrs. Erickson, who is who? in fact <laughs> with Leorbri. Uh, there's like a researcher who talks about some kind of dynamite or something. We meet Does that guy get a name? I don't think so. I think he's just unnamed researcher. Yeah. And there's also, uh, oh yes, of course, Anscombe's sister. Yeah. It was very important and I'm sure will have ramifications throughout the story. <laughs> I mean, she does, she does it seem unveil what 15 has been all about, mm. which is this clue that Campion has been haunted by ever since he woke up, but not known the meaning of. Yeah. He, she talks about some like contraband that's like- Maybe being moved around the city—it's a—it's a whole thing. But we'll—we'll we'll, we'll get more into the, the the mystery side of things, you know, later on. We will, we will. Yeah, I thought it was like really weird seeing how big the scale mm. of events kind of ramped up when we went in with the Aubrey to what the Masters of Bridge are doing for the War Office. They're like basically developing these ridiculous. At, at the time science fiction weapons <laughs> that could yeah. detonate remotely with this almighty power that could level buildings off in the distance with naught but a thought that like <laughs> you're like okay well suddenly the level of threat in this novel has gone from trivial to outright horrifying yeah i mean this story is very much about campion and his like rediscovering who he is that's like the core of the story but Mm -hmm. you're right between these science fiction weapons that are being researched at the institute Mm -hmm. tm there's also like a hundred lorries just like sitting underground i believe like the the scale of what's going on here seems to be quite uh quite significant i think the thing that was like most noteworthy to me about this was how like flippant Lee Albury is mm. with all of this. Him not really caring about money when so much of what he has to do is with money is really interesting. Him talking to Campion as though they're like age-old friends when we don't really know if that's true. Like, does that say that they are friends and there's some history that we're going to find out about later on? Or does it say mm. that uh, Lee Albury is like, you know, aware of what's going on and he's trying to convince an amnesiac 
uh, Campion that they have been friends to like win him over or does he just not care? Is he like willing to be flippant because he feels he has that much power? There's like so many questions that we get raised by the way he talks about what he does. Maybe he is an old friend of camp and he's just trying to help out. You don't know. I don't know. That's, that's the interesting thing. Yeah. Maybe every character in this novel is secretly an old friend of Campion's. It's all a big surprise party at the end. They're like, we we gave you amnesia just so that we could throw a surprise party oh, for you. Oh, and the traitor's purse is the person who accidentally gives away <sighs> the game that it's all a surprise party in the end. Amanda. Amanda. Figured it out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Finally, it all comes together. Yeah. That's all I want. The, the other thing that we have that's persistent uh, and has been stalking us since last episode is the- the Spectre of Stanislas Oates. Ooh, yeah. I mean, we haven't even seen this man. Yeah, he's been mentioned time and time again, and the impression that we get is that he is somehow a part of the investigation that Campion is involved in, but because he's gone missing, Campion is now in charge of the investigation, mm. and... The, the, like obviously Campion doesn't know what he's in charge of is the first thing <laughs> then raises the question of where has he gone well it's definitely a case of if if uh Sinisus Oates were here uh it, it wouldn't be up to Campion to save the day you know there'd be another shoulder to cry on so to speak because we kind of get the 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 idea that no matter where Campion's subconscious sends him it should be the correct place you know yeah there is a sense that even though there is all this tension and all these scales like tipping and turning there is probably going to be a good outcome if campion can just stick with his gut and 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 work between those two sides of himself you know if he can holistically attack the problem either way we are covering marjorie allingham traitor's purse up to and including chapter 14 mm-hmm. stick around you're on death of the reader your murder mystery world tour here on 2ser 107.3 You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I am joined this afternoon by a guest that some of you listening may find peculiar. Michael Muhammad Ahmad is the founding director of the Sweatshop Literary Movement and an acclaimed author for novels such as The Tribe, The Lebs, and most recently, The Other Half of You. Michael, it's so good to have you here on Death of the Reader. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And let me also say assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. I suppose the thing that I wanted to get into first is why I've gotten you on the show. Because as I said, it's a little bit curious having an autobiographical fiction writer on a show about murder mystery. You're speaking at the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival coming up uh, later this week as we talk now. And I really wanted to dive into that kind of idea of the Western Sydney mythology that your panel this weekend is about and how it kind of relates to the mythologizing of detective fiction. We have these vast canons of Sherlock and Watson, Hercule Poirot, this like almost godlike characters in the detective fiction canon. Talk to me a little bit about like mythologizing Western Sydney in fiction. It's a fantastic uh, question actually and I think I might have an interesting answer but before I do I need to tell you because you you address me as Muhammad, you introduce me as Michael Muhammad Ahmed. So talking about mythology and fiction, um, I actually have two names and have a split identity. Uh, I have the first name Michael, but also the first name Muhammad. And I like to ask my friends, and we're friends now, Flex. I like to ask my friends uh, to address me as Muhammad going forward with this conversation. But I think that's important, an important segue into talking about Western Sydney because when we're talking about Western Sydney, we're talking about uh, the largest 
community, the largest population of people of any region in Australia. There's over 2 million people living in Western Sydney. You're also talking about the place that is the most culturally and linguistically diverse, which is why you have so many interesting uh, and complex issues relating to people's names. And you also have the largest population of people from First Nations backgrounds. So Western Sydney is a microcosm of what we mean when we say Australia. Now let's insert this conversation around crime fiction. I, I would like to answer that specifically in relation to my cultural identity as an Arab Australian Muslim man. Uh, I grew up uh, as a teenager in the Western suburbs during the post 9-11 era. And in the lead up to the September 11 attacks, there was a lot of media about young Arab and Muslim men who were seen by the broader public, especially the white Australian public, as potential terrorist suspects, as potential drug dealers and drive-by shooters, uh, gangsters, and also in the context of the SCAF gang rapes in the year 2000, uh, we were seen as potential sexual predators. And so we were referred to by the cultural theorists as a folk devil. It's a tricky conversation to have when you're dealing with a persecuted minority because the conversation is not fiction. When your whole life is literally constructed like a crime fiction novel. Yeah. When we talk about crime fiction, we talk about a writer who gets to sit down and make up a story about crime. But you don't expect journalists to do that. Yeah. You don't expect politicians to do that. But that was my reality. My reality was coming home from school and putting on the television and literally seeing fictionalized nonsense stories about Arabs and Muslims as criminals, then there's no real, there's no room to write fiction, you know? Yeah. And so this is where that fine line between reality and fiction becomes quite blurry for people like us. In fact, our fiction becomes reality and, and the reality becomes fiction, which is why I, I deal with the, the genre called autobiographical fiction. When we come through, and I really wanted to talk about uh, the other half of you in this moment, because Bunny Adam, uh, which is a, a name that kind of stands in for yourself, but also means humanity, as I understand it. I really enjoyed comparing our current text, Marjorie Allingham's Trader's Purse, and his amnesiac detective, Albert Campion, relearning to love his fiance and comparing that to the way that Banny Adam is like exploring the way that he loves his son and how that came to be over the three novels that you've kind of presented him through. For you as a reader through both of these books, you're kind of taken back to ground zero. You build that relationship up. Why was it important to kind of go right back to the start? And what things did you draw out of writing this book that have kind of reframed the way you appreciate the relationship with the other people you love in your life? The reason why I named my autobiographical alter ego, Bunny Adam, Bunny Adam, is because I wanted to write a, a story that humanizes the experience of being an Arab and Muslim man. Flex, the last couple of years have been incredibly divisive for uh, Australians and more broadly, the, the world. Uh, after the history of Islamophobia and anti-Arabness that I was talking to you about earlier in this country, I, I really believe it culminated. It ultimately resulted in uh, one of the most tragic uh, incidents in Australian history, one of, uh, which was the Christchurch massacre. A year later, we saw the, the rise of COVID-19. And um, as a byproduct of COVID-19, we saw a tremendous spike in anti-Asian violence in, in Australia and around the world. And then very shortly after that, with the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement erupted. And as a byproduct of the Black Lives Matter movement, there was more pressure on Australia to address the mistreatment of 
First Nations people, and in particular, the deaths in custody, over 500 deaths in custody since 1993. So this has been a very difficult and challenging period for Australians in relation to race. And so while these significant incidents were happening, I was in my home in Western Sydney writing my novel, my my letter to my son. And what might, might, might be interesting for the audience to know is that my son is mixed race. His mother is Anglo-Australian, comes from a very atheistic, secular, middle-class family. And, you know, I come from a working class, Lebanese, uh, Syrian, Muslim, Shiite, Alawite family. And so, you know, the story of how we came together and how we brought this little boy into the world, I really felt was the story that needed to be told right now. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting there, Muhammad, about the idea that the big context struggles kind of change the way that you saw that relationship with your son as being like culturally important. And the thing I wanted to extract from that is this idea that you spoke about with my colleague Andrew Popel over on Final Draft of The Everyman when the other half of you first came out. And you were talking about how the specificity of Bunny Adam was almost better as a lens on society than the generic everyman who inadvertently excludes everyone. And there's something really powerful to me in that crime fiction context because the Watson as a character archetype is so crucial. Why do you think that crime fiction still leans on this kind of genericism so often when we go back to that classic character archetype? Yeah, I mean, I I respect your interpretation. I might have a slightly different interpretation, which is that it uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson are very culturally specific, but white cultural specificity has been so normalized that we see it as generic. Yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I hear Sherlock Holmes and Watson um, and Watson being the lens that we, we, we understand the story from, I see it as part of a very Eurocentric and even more specifically English literary tradition and, and form of storytelling and form of mystery, which is terrific. Um, when I think of James Joyce, I, I can't separate James Joyce from Dublin. Yeah. And I think what's been so special about this literary renaissance that's been happening in Western Sydney for the last 10 years is that we are creating this distinct literary culture that has its own vernacular, that has its own stories, that has its own specificity and is right now feeling quite exotic. But, I, but I'd like to think, you know, in a couple of hundred years, it will it will be a what we consider to be a normal part of Australian literary culture, an ordinary voice. I want to make one more point. Uh, if you read The Other Half of You, it's the first book where I experimented with the second person as a form. Uh, Benny Adam in my first two books is speaking generally to his to a to a reader that um I would presume is whoever is reading it. However, with the other half of you, I mean it's even hardwired into the title, but there's a you in there. And Benny is talking to this you the whole way through the book. And that you is his son, is my son, Khalil. His mother and I named him after the great Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran. Khalil, my son, my newborn son in the book, is really the lens that everybody who reads the book is experiencing it through. And so I do find it kind of funny because you're the first person to introduce this idea to me. But Khalil is very much the Watson of, um, <laughs> of you know, the Arab-Australian Western Sydney literary 
text called The Other Half of You. I love that. I love that as a statement. Muhammad, it has been such a pleasure talking with you here on Death of the Reader, and I am looking so forward to seeing you at the panel. Thank you once again, Muhammad. Thank you so much for the incredible honor of this conversation. And just like we began, I'd like to finish by saying assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. An enormous thank you to Michael Muhammad Ahmad for that incredible conversation. There is a lot more of that going up on Death of the Readers podcast. So get subscribed if you aren't already, because there is so much more depth to go into there. We're going to be going back into Marjorie Allingham in just a second. You're on Death of the Reader. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing chapters 8 to 14 of Marjorie Allingham's Traitor's Purse. I am solving this here thriller mystery that Herds has posed me. And gosh darn it, Herds, Mm. I'm having such a good time. I've not nearly thought enough about the mystery. I'll come now. It's not, look, it's not that complicated mystery. Let's be, come on, come on, Flex. You've, you've solved more complicated mysteries than this, you know? I have solved more complicated mysteries than this, but I think that because of the era that Allingham was writing in, surrounded by authors of the Golden Age, her use of clues mm. is at their level, but without the need for the shocking twist. <laughs> like, sure. Lee Aubrey is obviously evil what he's so nice novel we don't need a twist to tell us that but the avenue of his evil is beautifully masked Mm. by so many throwaway lines yes well i will definitely be putting uh at least at least one point on 15 let's say i'm i don't know how much detail i want to give you because if you're already struggling i don't want to help you out i don't make this easy for you i don't make this easy or harder well yeah i mean we know that 15 in, allegedly, mm. uh, has to do with minute 15, mm. which, given that it is capitalized M and F in minute 15, I figure that it is like the title of a meeting minutes, okay. like a secret that they are trying to bury, presumably from a discussion with the Masters of Bridge that Anscombe was trying to smuggle out, because mm. we have note that he was trying to smuggle some form of, quote, contraband mm. and it could be contraband information to the tune of meeting minutes given he is the secretary of the masters of bridge what what sort of information do you think he might have been trying to smuggle out then because clearly if, if that is the case that he's been silenced to keep this information a secret yeah what is that information like what is worth what is worth killing a man for yeah I, I, it's obviously whatever shadowy thing lee aubrey is up to but Figuring that out has Hmm. somewhat evaded me. I made the suggestion last week, basically, that he was trying to make his own little republic inside uh, inside of Bridge, inside of England. Farcical, obviously. The kind of two best suggestions that I have is either he is trying to, like, threaten the war office with the arms that he is making for them he does make the note that the war office will kind of look the other way but at the same time it's it's not the kind of nefarious evil i would expect of a thriller novel so much as like the the thing i'd expect to read in a newspaper once every few months (laughs) that's fair (laughs) enough fair enough i think lee albury here is trying to have a go at the finances 
of the British government. Okay, I like this. Somehow ruin the war effort, which is why mm-hmm. when we go visit Lug for the first time, Lug says, you brought this the last time you were here, mm. a, which is a, a big collection of banknotes. Now, the thing that I'm torn on at this point, Herds, is whether he is throwing a bunch of money in to devalue the British the British, is it the pound? Was it the pound at this point? It was probably the pound probably. at this point in history. I don't know my British financial history. Better learn up. Trying to devalue yep. the pound or whether he is trying to scurry away enough pounds that he thinks people will look the other way because of the war. Okay. I'm not sure exactly which way it is, mm. but like, I don't know. Is that something that you want me to put a hard decision on herds? Or, I mean, or can I, be- I, I kind of like you to be a bit, a bit, a bit harder on this one. Just to, just to kind of put your foot where you where your mouth is, as it were. Because uh, <laughs> I'm definitely putting uh, at, at least one point on on minute fifteen and like what the overall scheme is. I think I think I might even put two points on it because it, it sounds oh, like crap. Because there are there are kind of two sides to this. Um, I'll, I'll give you that much of a hint. I, I like some of your ideas. Yeah, I'm very curious to see where these land. So what 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 is the scheme? You reckon he's gonna? send some lorries out with X goods, whatever X may be. I would love for you to tell me exactly what (sighs) goods these are. The thing is, is like on the one hand, I would argue the case that the goods are insignificant. Like if it is material goods, he is taking for himself to sell off for more money that works. But if it's just money that he's taking and having on the books, double dipping into the coffers, so to speak, it it doesn't necessarily matter which he's doing to me. Mm. He's still taking more resources from the government or putting more resources into the system from the government to like change things in his favor. But I guess I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm going to say money <laughs> okay. because sure. it, the, A, the novel is called Traitor's Purse, not Traitor's War Supplies Depot. <laughs> Traitors' <laughs> guns, yes, indeed, uh, sure. and and also because even if it is war supplies, the end product for himself is money. It's, sure, it's got to be that he's counterfeiting money, right? Because why? What? What does Campion have to gain by taking a sample if there isn't something wrong with the sample? Mm. Aubrey is counterfeiting money to to make him to to like get himself political power. Presumably by causing like some sense of instability, because that's the like theme that he was talking about at that first meeting, the Bridge Institute, is that like instability can kind of create these vacuums where great thinkers can step up and prove themselves, where really he just means I would like to have more power. <laughs> I guess I don't know, are there any other questions you want me to answer here, Herds? Because I I can in the in the the world map of my theory that I've painted in front of me here, there are a lot of holes, <laughs> but I yeah, can no, still look, see the I'm, continents. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying hearing your thought process. I feel like you're kind of working this out yeah. live on air, which is always exciting. I guess I I feel like you you have some sort of accusation, Lee Aubrey, uh, whether or not he's you know even a guilty party. Who even knows? <laughs> who knows? Uh, <laughs> who knows? The thing you will notice that I'm not saying this week is I don't think Lady Amanda's betraying us. I'm very sad about that. The chapter 14 literally ends with Amanda going all, oh, I'm sad. I know, like, but poor champion. Here's oh. the thing, right? Is that chapter 13 is is like one of my favorite chapters in the book because. You know, Amanda shows up and Campion's first reaction is, oh, I'm hallucinating. <laughs> and yeah. then this entire scene with Anscombe's sister and Amanda 
you're not sure whether the tone of it is incredibly menacing or like kind of sad and belittling to Campion. But because of what happens at the end of chapter 14, where Amanda is like saying the the mantras they clearly shared together, I think it's meant to show that she's still on side. The fun thing about that final moment there with Amanda is that she clearly has had some doubts. Yeah. And she says that line, she says the first half of that old joke that they've shared, I think to reassure herself that Campion still you know, wants to be friends, even if she mash- she marries that dashing Lee Aubrey. <laughs> and he just doesn't, he doesn't reciprocate. Begone, she stormed across the raging tide. Exactly. And that, I assume, is what Amanda did as soon as that scene ended. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think I think that the, the traitor in this case, I mean, now that I've kind of like worked my way through that logic, I think it makes more sense that the traitor's purse is that Lee Aubrey is trying to mess up the economy which okay like we've shown in the scale of the bridge institute he ha- he has a lot of scale in his production so it's not out of the question that he would have the means to like actually disrupt britain's economy you think you could perhaps uh define that a little bit more in terms of you reckon he has some counterfeit money like is he just gonna hand that out to people like how 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 is he gonna use counterfeit money to to disrupt the economy like what what is the scheme there well he's got to get it into people's hands and that is probably what minute 15 is about because if it's just a bunch of fake money sitting in lee Aubrey's bank account it really (laughs) doesn't make a difference i think that'll be that'll be all then i like i like these thoughts i like these theories um i'm excited to see what happens in the end? I hope you're ready for ch- train escapades. That's that's how we're gonna go with the novel <laughs> next. Me? Train escapades. It's gonna. You know, be great. I suppose. I suppose after what Abia Mukherjee did to us earlier this yeah. year, train escapades and thriller novels really I mean, just cannot be apart. It's funny you mentioned that novel. It's an eerily similar scene. We'll we'll get to that. Uh, but yeah, we'll be covering uh, more of uh, Marjorie Allium's Traitor's Purse. I am not having the. Chapters 15 to the end next time on the show. It's going to be a blast. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We'll see you then. We're out of here.